Drive. How are y'all this morning? I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. I have the privilege and the honor to introducing our speaker today. Uh, it's a, I have gotten to know him and his wife over the last year, year and a half, and they're just loving people. And I can tell you that he loves God because the way that he loves others. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, this is how you're going to know that you're my disciples. That this is how they're going to know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And this guy, I'm telling you, he, he loves humanity. He, uh, you know, <clears throat> he goes overseas. He spends time in the mission field training people to love other people, and I don't want to even steal his message. It's it's a very intriguing and thought provoking. And if you would give a warm welcome to Dr. Bruce Woodall. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna begin by saying thank you to uh, Pastor Nathan for inviting me to this Pastor Cass for helping me out through the week. And the folks back there, I tell you, if anyone's ever up here teaching or preaching, there's a few people who are definitely listening to the sermon. It's the folks back there, because they track a lot of and I appreciate you so much. Um, Pastor Nathan's been taking us through the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are in the book of Matthew. They are the opening to the famous Sermon on the Mount, probably the most important, most famous sermon ever preached. And it all, it all begins... Uh, it's a part of Jesus' uh, ministry, and I'd like for us to go back to where it all started. Uh, in Matthew 4.12, we have the scripture that tells us, it says, Now when Jesus has heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth, and he made his home in Capernaum by the sea. So we're going to take a little time, and we're going to go to Capernaum. This will be Jesus' base of operations during his ministry. And uh, I'm pretty compulsive about wanting to know the context, the history and the background of places I'm talking about. So I'd like us to take a moment, look at a map. Up there in the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. You can see Capernaum, way up there in the north. And uh, Galilee is over here, you know, to the, uh, kind of to the west of it. And Jesus traveled, moved to, moved to Capernaum, made that his home. Well, the Sea of Galilee is misnamed. It's, let me break it to you, it's not a sea, okay? It's a freshwater lake. And it's not even that big by world standards. About 33 miles of uh, coastline to make up the Sea of Galilee. But it's a beautiful freshwater lake. It uh, kind of is the beginning of the Jordan River as we know it, the river that Jesus was baptized in. But if you look, there's some, there's some interesting geology there. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. Uh, I, uh, as I was looking at this, and this whole river valley, the Jordan River Valley, is known as the uh, uh, Jordan Rift Valley. Uh, it's a geological rift, and uh, I was uh, probably not an original thought, but as I was studying this, I thought, you know, maybe the way the place got the name the Holy Land is that it's actually in a hole. It's in the, uh, it is in the deepest dry land hole on the planet, and even though the Sea of Galilee is so low, the Jordan River still flows down southward and makes it all the way to the Dead Sea down here with Jerusalem uh, to the west of that, about 100 miles along the Jordan River. Now, the Dead Sea is ten times saltier than the ocean. So, uh, there's not much growing there. The contrast is remarkable. 
I look at this, I look at this picture of uh, Northern Galilee, your work for Turner uh, was, and I think, that looks like a great place for a Mediterranean-style vacation. Uh, in fact, if uh, Dale and I ever get to travel to Holy Land, I'm going to check and see if we can book an Airbnb somewhere in Capernaum. But I think that looks like a great place to hang out. Well, travel about 100 miles south to uh, the uh, Dead Sea area, and this looks like, um, looks like a good place to make a documentary on hell. Uh, so we can, uh, we can kind of understand why Jesus chose Galilee as his base of operations. I think he was pretty wise. Well, a, a lot of things happen. A lot of things happen in Capernaum. Um, you've got some wonderful stories there. Uh, it's where you know, with John, uh, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Capernaum was a town where the fishermen apostles came from. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were called from Capernaum. Uh, you've got, uh, it was a uh, place where they had a synagogue. And we're told in Matthew 17, Mark 1 and John 6, that Jesus taught in the synagogue there. So he made his presence in Capernaum. Uh, even though it was away from the nerve center, uh, and this is, a, I like this picture too. This is a, that shows Nazareth. This, this would be the journey Jesus would have made as he moved from his hometown of Nazareth to make his home there uh, in Capernaum by the sea, or by the lake. Um, this is a place where, uh, even though it was not kind of quiet, kind of pastoral, away from the nurse in Jerusalem, there was still a contingent of Roman soldiers there. Uh, we have the story of Jesus uh, healing the paralytic let down through the roof. We have him you know, healing the official son. But then we have what is, to me, one of the most fascinating encounters of all. It was with a centurion. A centurion was a Roman commander. He had 80 or more soldiers underneath him. And so if we have a centurion based in Capernaum, this town of 1,500 people, he had his soldiers with him. Probably 5 to 10% of the population of Capernaum were Roman soldiers. If you'd gone up to a Roman soldier and you'd ask him, why are you here? Why are you in Capernaum? I suspect they probably would have said, to keep the peace. They were the administrative and the justice arm of the Roman government. They were there to make sure trouble didn't get started. So when Jesus began making, attracting flash crowds there, he would, he would go to a house and people would gather. He'd go up on the hillside, people would gather. He'd go to the synagogue, people would go to the synagogue. He undoubtedly would have attracted the attention of the Roman authorities. I can imagine they would have thought, okay, what's this guy up to? I mean, is he going to gather a group of people together? Are they going to break out the, the boxes of spray paint and the bricks? Are they going to uh, go turn over chariots and burn businesses and start an insurrection against the Romans? So, you know, as Jesus was gathering crowds, I suspect this unnamed centurion would have said, uh, some of you guys could go over there and check out what's going on over there. I, I kind of like the picture of them coming back and saying, okay, what happened over there on the hillside over there? And I said, well, you know, it was that, it was that rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus, he was preaching. He was preaching, okay? And, and he healed some people. He healed some people. Yeah? Uh, well, the blind, there was a blind man who got his side back. There was a crippled man who started walking. He cast out some demons. Uh-huh. Okay, I'll tell you what. Next time Jesus gets a crowd together, let me know. I'm going to go over here myself. Now, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of imagining. But if we go to Matthew 8, this is probably not far off the mark because eventually this centurion's uh, servant becomes ill. He doesn't go to an astronomer. He doesn't go find a shaman and uh, kill a chicken and sprinkle some blood. He doesn't go to any of the pagan deities. He goes to Jesus. Says to him, Jesus, my servant is ill. 
Jesus says, you can be healed. I'll go be them. This Roman, this Roman centurion says, wait, you know, I know some things about authority. I, I, see, I recognize authority, genuine authority, when I see it. In fact, I have authority. I've got soldiers underneath me. I give an order, they obey my order. You, Jesus, I can recognize, have authority over nature. Don't probably come to my house, I'm not worthy of it. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And that's what happened. And Jesus stopped right there, and he delivered a pretty blistering rebuke to the, uh, to the Jews among them. He said, look, I have not seen faith like this among Israel. And when the children of God are gathered from the four corners of the earth, among them will be people just like this. This uncircumcised, unclean pagan warrior will be there. Then he, uh, then he goes on, and uh, he continues teaching in Galilee. And if we're going to be in Capernaum, we're going to see and hear about a lot of boats. Uh, in the New Testament, there are 50 mentions of boats in the, in the four Gospels, 50 mentions of boats around the area of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing village. And interestingly, and this is just a kind of fleshes out my understanding of Capernaum, in 1986, when I was in college, a discovery was made. There was a, there was a drought in Galilee, and the waters receded further than they ever had in, in recorded history. There were two Galilean fishermen, two brothers who were out fishing, and they noticed just beneath the surface, an area they hadn't noticed it before, they noticed the outline of a boat. They contacted the Israeli uh, antiquities authorities, and sure enough, after a little bit of investigation, they realized that what they had found was a boat that dated back to the first century. Uh, the word got out that this boat had been found, and somebody started to remember that there was gold in it, and so they quickly had to call out the Israeli military to surround it and keep guard over it. And then as it began to dry and oxygen hit the, uh, hit the fibers of the, of the wood, it began to disintegrate. So they had to spray it with water, and over a 12-day period, they did a massive rescue. They dug underneath it, built a frame around it, and then sprayed it with foam insulation, and finally flooded it. And so the first time in 2,000 years this boat floated, and as it was towed to the museum, and while they were building it, they built a, uh, they fabricated a stainless steel tank to put it in because they realized to restore it, they'd have to keep it wet. And as the thing, I assume, as it floated past the perm, it probably looked like a two-ton piece of cheddar cheese. Uh, but uh, there's even a, I even saw a picture that they allowed the two Galilean brothers that found it. At one point, they allowed them to sit in, the, sit in it and take a picture of them being the first guys in 2,000 years uh, sailing on this boat that their ancestors had probably built. And it might have been about the Jesus said. Now, there's no proof Jesus was in this boat. Nobody ever found a carving that said Jesus was here. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I look at it and I say, we don't know he didn't. So, if you ever, ever go to Capernaum, if you ever go to Galilee, there's a museum there, and there's the Jesus boat. Okay. In this setting, this place with fishermen, boats, Roman centurions, common people like us, uh, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he began it with the Beatitudes. Each one begins with, blessed are. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. If you're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to understand everything that Jesus taught, you need to understand the Beatitudes. To be blessed is to be joyful, to be blissful. Jesus 
began his ministry by saying that his people would be noticed not because they were entertained or entertaining, not because they were wealthy, not because they were self-righteous. They would not be recognized because they were prop brokers or rulers. They would be recognized because they were blessed, blissful, joy-filled. So if we, if we are going to have the mark of Christ, if we are going to be the children of God, we're going to have a heart, if we're going to be people after God's own heart, as was said of King David in the Old Testament, we will be people who will have heart surgery. We will have, been, we will have that heart of blissfulness, that, that, that peace that can only come from the inside out, which is what distinguishes the Christian faith from any other philosophy. It's an inside job. It starts by changing us. And if the world changes, it changes because it changed us first. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What is peace? And why is peacemaking called for? To be the children of God is to be peacemaking. Well, I will answer that. What is peace? By going back to the beginning. Going back to the book of Genesis. God created the cosmos. He designed a unique solar system and a planet, perfect for variables of subatomic particles, elements, natural laws, gravity, light, energy, everything that was needed to be perfect for life. He created an abundance of his own creativity, the flora and fauna, plants and animals, things like sunflowers and redwoods, whales and jellyfish, Elephants and orangutans, peacocks and eagles. And he made it all for us. And finally, he created a species that had a soul, a man, and he put them in the garden. In the beginning, there was no need for peacemakers. It was peace. Everything was as it should be. Life was perfect. By the time Jesus would be on the Sea of Galilee living in Capernaum, the early days of Eden were long gone. What happened? As Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jews despised the Samaritans. The Romans fought, conquered, and subdued virtually everyone in the known world, including the Jews. The Jewish zealots fought against the Romans. The Romans arrested, tortured, and executed the zealots and any other subordinates using some of the most grotesque and inhuman methods ever devised, like crucifixion. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they clashed in the synagogues and bickered, and they oppressed the people almost as much as the Romans did. Tax collectors and other corrupt extortionists grew rich, betraying their countrymen and their neighbors. There was demon possession, disease, adultery, drunkenness, divorce, racism, murder, strife and hatred of every soul. Once man's relationship with God had been broken by sin, peaceful relationship with his own kind, that fell apart as well. And by Genesis 6, when we get ready for the flood, it said of the earth, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was evil all of the time. A few chapters later, we get another image of that that's kind of become a metaphor, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and how, how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was. 
And this, this didn't go unnoticed, even by the pagan philosophers who didn't fear God. There's an old Latin proverb, homo homi lupus est. Man is a wolf to his fellow man. Not a very peaceful, <coughs> not a very peaceful place. And this is the age of Palestine where Jesus taught. Unlike early days of Eden, things were broken, disturbed, and badly in need of peacemakers. You know, I was thinking on this and, and planning on living this, and I came to realize that I had been extremely fortunate. Uh, I got to experience a pretty peaceful childhood. Uh, I don't take any credit for that. I was just lucky, I guess. Uh, I was born to responsible parents and got to grow up in a country that was free and prosperous. And there were bad things happening, but they kind of seemed to be far away. Um, you know, by the time I uh, entered grade school, the history of World War II was uh, taught as history, something that happened a long time ago, far away. Even in 1968, when I started uh, uh, grade school, it was a year of turmoil. There was uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. There was the Vietnam War. A cultural revolution was starting. And many adults describe feeling 1968 was kind of like a year that the world was spinning out of control. Kind of like what it feels like today. But here I was, my brother and I, my twin brother and I, we were six, seven years old. We uh, caught crawdads on the creek, and we uh, went to Miss Adams' <coughs> kindergarten, and we, uh, we learned how to take care of dairy cows on a, on a family-owned dairy. That's kind of a picture of my childhood. Dairy cows and green pasture, pretty peaceful. They're not always peaceful when they're being built, but it makes <laughs> <interesting. laughs> But things went on and felt, you know, felt pretty peaceful. We had a few hiccups here and there. I can remember the uh, 52 American hostages being held in our room, but they were eventually released, and we elected a president who had a good sense of humor, and uh, the Berlin Wall fell, and the divide between East and West that had characterized the Cold War and the, and the talk of nuclear bombs and things like that fell apart. Things seemed pretty peaceful for a while. You know, even the, the Gulf War that happened when I was in medical school, that was we watched them singing and it happened a long way off. Everything seemed pretty peaceful until September uh, 11th. Then things changed, seemed to have changed remarkably since then. Uh, something else changed. I can remember growing up that um, the wild, crazy, and scary things that happened in other places were reported in a very calm, almost pastoral voice over black and white television by this guy named Walter Cronkite. Uh, and he would make you feel that even though things might be bad somewhere else, you know, you were going to get a good night's sleep and you'd be okay tomorrow. He kind of kept things calm. I've noticed that today, uh, news reporting seems to be designed to keep us anxious, fearful, and divided. And it's, it, it, it's so we don't live in a peaceful world. Our peace is constantly disrupted. Uh, as a physician, I think of a pacemaker as a life-saving electronic device that helps a sick heart be normally so that people can, can live. And now I've come to think of these things as an automatic anxiety inducer. Whatever happens in the world, anywhere, it's given to us instantly to react to and to be afraid of. And we've got very real things. Today, unlike when I was growing up, we've got progressives against conservatives, we've got wokeism, we've got the rejection of the court system and blatant disrespect for the law. There's Russia invading Ukraine and threatening NATO, China wanting to take Taiwan. We hear about all these things constantly. There's atheists and secularists who are against believers and radical Islamists against the West. Violence, fear-mongering, and honestly, a love of sin and perversion that I sometimes I wonder if it would make Solomon more a blush. 
things like internet pornography, the fentanyl and the other drug abuse epidemics, sex change surgery on small children, drag queens reading stories in public schools. Much like first century Capernaum, much like the world that Jesus preached in, our world today is in dire need of healing. It needs peace. It needs as much day as it's ever needed in the Garden of Eden. Anywhere where there is unrepentant sin, there is no peace. Anywhere where there's unresolved guilt and shame, you will not find peace. Where there's greed and injustice, there's no peace. Where there's violence and war, lack of peace. Where there's addictions, there's no peace. And where there's unforgiveness, whether it be unforgiveness of ourselves or unforgiveness of others, the peace is lost. Standing on a hillside in that beautiful area on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Jesus looked at that common people, people like us, and he said, you're going to be my people, and you are going to be peacemakers. How do we best understand this mission of peacemaking? I uh, occasionally now, more than a few years ago, I'll encounter people who really know almost nothing about the Bible. They don't really understand at all what the narrative Bible is. And if I'm trying to share it with them, I'll start out by saying, tell me what you think the message of the Bible is in one word. And, you know, most of them have enough familiarity with Christianity. They'll say something like, love, acceptance, um, charity. And I'll say, no, if you want to describe the Bible in one word, the best word is reconciliation. And reconciliation in the original language is actually the same word. Sometimes it's used and translated as peacemaking. God created the cosmos for man. He created man for an eternal relationship with himself. That relationship, that peace, was broken by sin. The rest of the Bible is just one long story, one long story of God working to reconcile man back to himself and to reconcile us to one another. If we accept that charge, we become heaven's ambassadors on earth, giving a troubled world a glimpse of things as it was meant to be. Jesus would go on, he would preach this, he would, it would be the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and then he would lead a bunch of dumbfounded followers standing on the hillside after his ascension, tasked with building God's kingdom on earth, tasked with giving the world a glimpse of what reconciliation meant. So you have the early apostles trying to take ordinary people like us and build us into a, into a Christ-like community, a community of peacemakers. And we get to go back and look at how they did that. We have the letters, kind of like reading someone else's mail in the New Testament letters. I'm going to give uh, two scriptures here. I'll start with Colossians 1, 20 through 22. This was written to the early church. And through him, <coughs> yes, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, irreproachable for him. Christ is a reconciler. He's what allows everything to be put, together, put back together. And what does he do to tell us? You will be reconciled. You will be the peacemakers. The children of God will be recognized by their peacemakers. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God, who what? Reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There it is, straight from the Beatitudes. You're going to be the children of God, you're going to be reconciled. <clears throat> he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. We implore the world. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another. Where there, uh, where there are addic where addictions are putting people at war against their own bodies, we point them to Jesus, and we help them find peace, peace and recovery. Where there is selfishness and exploitation, we have an opportunity to demonstrate a diverse community governed by generosity, love, and forgiveness. Where there is hurt, unforgiveness, and bitterness, we introduce the, the heavy-hearted and the resentful to a God that can make forgiveness, healing, and a blissful and a peaceful heart possible. Where there's national and racial strife, we invite the world to unite under the banner of God. I'd like to just end right here in a moment, uh, a little bit more, but I'd like to just impart upon us this, this commission that we were given to be peacemakers. First by Jesus in the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, and later uh, in these letters to the early church. Lord God, we recognize that we live in a world that is disrupted, uh, broken, and we, we accept the challenge to be peacemakers. We want to be your children. We want to reach out. We want to help heal a broken and lost world. We pray that you open our eyes every day. Show us how to do that. Amen. Uh, some of you are aware that my wife, Dale, and I, we um, spend uh, about six months every year uh, volunteering overseas. Uh, we go to the country of Burma. Uh, it is torn by war for 50 years. It's been at war. It's not a peaceful place. It's a very violent, and, uh, ugly, and dangerous place. Uh, it needs peace. It needs reconciliation. It needs Jesus. I'm going to let the event that occurred there kind of be our closing uh, to, to the Beatitudes and to Christ's charge to us to be the children of God and be peaceful. Simple if the world was just like Lord of the Rings. Here's the humans and the elves and the dwarves and the hobbits, and we're pretty good. And there's the evil orcs, and they're all terrible. And so the line of evil is here, and they're all evil, and we're all good. But in real life, the line of good and evil isn't between us and other people. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the Russian dissident, he said, the line is in our hearts. Each human's heart. This is the first battle. Sine 2 was a small boy was taken by the Burma army and then put in the Burma army fighting his own people. When he came to us, he didn't say a lot, except we knew he escaped from the Burma army. And he came to us and he said, you know, I'm so bad, I don't know if God would ever forgive me. Loving your enemy and praying 
for your enemies is not easy. But I have to try. The people that he confessed all this to, he had attacked. And nobody killed him. And people forgave him. God is love. He loves everyone. He's not our enemy anymore. He'd asked to be baptized. So he baptized him in the river in our camp. Forgiveness is a counter warfare that has eternal energy to it. That is not easy. Pray for your enemy, love your enemy. But your enemy will become your friend someday. I want you to come up 
and get this prayer and just whatever it is that needs reconciled unto God, whatever you want to just lay at the throne, go lay at God's feet. As brings about so powerfully that we are now ministers of reconciliation and He wants to give you that power for one to let you know that you have been reconciled to the Father, that He loves you, He forgives you. And that then you can take that power of reconciliation and go and tell your enemy. There's a lot of people out there that are friends with the world. There's a lot of people out there that are just lost and they don't know what to do. They need this ministry of reconciliation. So if everybody could please stand. And as I pray and turn it over to the worship team, if you need prayer, if you want this impartation of reconciliation, now, now is your time. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that, that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our hate, that you've come down to love us, to be the sacrifice, to forgive us of all of our sins. And now that you sit at the right hand of God, as every enemy is put under your feet, you're saying right now, I love you. I forgive you. Come unto me. For now is the time of invitation.